Welcome to the Best Boss Ever podcast. I'm your host, Christine LaPerriere, president of Leader in Motion. On this show, we're going to gossip about the best boss you ever had. We're going to hear stories about things that they did that helped you feel valued, helped you feel engaged, and really inspired you. We want to hear about the bosses that changed the way you look at everything. If you want to hear more, join me at christinelaperriere.com and sign up for our newsletter, The Whip. So today I have Patsy on with me, and I am so thrilled you reached out and told me that you had a couple of inspiring stories to tell us, which to me is the most fun type of Best Boss podcast. So Patsy, I'll go ahead and have you introduce yourself, You know, tell everybody a little bit about where you're coming from today. Sure. Happy to. And thank you so much for having me on the podcast today. I think it's a a great question, and it really makes you think. And so I'm delighted to be here. In a brief nutshell, my career of the past 25 plus years, even though I hate to admit that, has been focused uh, initially on talent development, then grew into diversity, equity, and inclusion, then grew into corporate social responsibility and ESG. So my areas of expertise are really around in inclusion, talent, and ESG. And I've had the opportunity to run organizations at the C-suite level on these topics and primarily in financial services, but also in data management. And I also had the opportunity to run a nonprofit and live and work in three different continents between Europe, the United States, and Asia. So I share that with you all because for me, the global perspective is really, really important to who I am and to people that I work with, including my best bosses. Amazing. Well, I'm so glad this is going to be great to get your perspective. Not many people can say that, right? Okay. I'm going to dive right in. When we asked you, who is your best boss ever and why? What were some of the first things you thought of? Absolutely. Again, a great question. And, And what I first thought about was really the fact that he, my best boss ever, was really an inclusive leader. And and I really mean that in the sense of that he would really take the time to understand people that worked with him. You know, what were our drivers? What were our motivations? Who were we? Who are we as individuals and as people? And really to understand, listen, and apply that to how he behaved. And I really, really am inspired by that approach. In fact, it's something that I try to do myself as a boss as well, because I think that is so important. And many bosses don't necessarily take the time to really get to know what motivates their people. So tell me, you know, as you would be in conversation with him, just tell me some of the ways he'd explicitly kind of bring this idea to life. So a lot of it was about challenging me. I'm I'm an optimist at the highest end of the scale. And so a lot of our conversations would be okay. So we think about diversity, equity, inclusion. At the time when I was working for this individual, I was the chief diversity officer for a large global organization. And it was challenging, right? Diversity, equity, and inclusion is challenging no matter where you are. Historically, it's always been a challenging space. And he would really make me dive into what are those challenges, right? In addition to bringing people on board to the concept, helping them understand the why, the business case, the social case, even though we think that everybody knows that, they don't necessarily know that, and kind of digging into that and also digging into both the element of quantitative metrics around how do you define success But also, and I think this is particularly unique, is having that broad framework 
but also really making sure that my approach and my role and my team and his approach as well was very individualized and making sure that, you know, you're bringing one person along at a time, implementing the broader strategy. And so that's where our conversations got particularly interesting, saying, okay, well, what, what's the data behind this? How are we measuring success? But also, how do we actually bring person A on board, person B on board, and, and go from there, you know, really holding their hand through the journey? Right. And so, I mean, obviously, he had that great connection with you, but how did you see him treat people that worked for you? Or how did he treat other people in the organization, like people that didn't report to him, you know, people he didn't need loyalty from? Like, how did he treat them? Well, it's also a great question. So interestingly enough, slightly tangential, but related, this particular individual was a lawyer and came from running the legal business and then moved into a human resources capacity. And I tell you that because he was very humble in his approach. I mean, already very successful with the organization, already at the executive level as part of the executive committee reporting into the CEO, but had this humility about him where he was always, always trying to learn something new. So he really had that intellectual curiosity and then taking that to the next level, really having that learning agility to take on board that learning experience and to act on it, take the feedback and to act on it in every interaction. So I saw him doing that regularly, not only with me, but with members of my team in terms of engaging with them. He also did it in a very, very personal way. So he spent a lot of time individually with each of us, his direct reports and our direct reports to really get to know us personally which sounds very basic, but it's so important. And that's not always the case with many, many bosses. And I really appreciated that about him. And additionally, I would say he was very respectful to everyone in the organization. He was a role model for inclusive leadership and for respect in the sense that, and I'll give you a very specific example. So if he wanted to reach out to a member of my team to seek their input on, on something, he would never do it without giving me the heads up or asking about it, right? And that's a, a small thing, but it's really important. And it really demonstrates, I think, respect very, very wholeheartedly. He wanted to make sure that you felt included again in that, you know, what he was doing was all in honor of everyone. A hundred percent. And and getting back to your, your question as well on that topic, I think the way he operated and continues to operate because we're still very much in touch. In fact, I just had lunch with him two weeks ago. He continues to be a mentor and a colleague and a partner. At the end of the day, everything about him really goes back to inclusion. So every way that he treated people in the organization, no matter who they were, no matter what level they were at, no matter where they were in the world, was always about inclusion and really creating that environment where people, including myself, felt valued and felt trusted. That's amazing. And so one last question about him. What was it like when there was a problem, when there was a struggle? Like, did you ever see him get triggered or frustrated? And how did he still carry some of these leadership qualities like on a bad day? Yeah, wow. My best boss ever. Definitely has a very quiet and a, a very, very steady approach to how he operates. And so it was very rare that you would see him actually triggered, frankly, by anything, to be honest, uh, which also it made him that admirable because he had a very stressful job. We all did. And yet, you know, you never saw him lose his cool, per se. Having said that, I remember one example 
with an interaction with the board where something had been communicated incorrectly about our diversity and inclusion strategy. And clearly his relationship with the board was absolutely critical to his success, our success, and the entire organization. He definitely had a moment where you could see him lose his cool and say, look, you know, we've got to fix this. We've got to rectify it. But it was very short-lived. And once we were on top of rectifying it, and basically rectifying it meant just being more communicative, right, and being more transparent. So we were able to address it rather quickly. But I do recall that moment. And I think clearly the interaction with the board made it that much more important. But it was a very rare moment. And he always would come back very quickly from that triggered moment. I mean, it's interesting to see, right? Because, you know, kind of how we handle our toughest day sometimes can be a really big metric for really how strongly rooted we are in our leadership values. You know, do they just go out the window the minute you're having a bad day or do they still remain present throughout, you know, the good and the bad? Right. So you also mentioned you had another story about another leader. I'd love to hear it. Sure. Happy to. This is actually a pretty funny story. So this is another boss that I had who was very good at the time. And this was uh, quite a while ago when I was living in uh, Asia. And what I appreciated about this particular individual, he happens to be a man as well, is that he was very supportive of me. And so this is a very personal story. I mean, I think he behaved, he was always a supportive leader, but it was very different depending on the individual, which I also appreciate. But he was of me as an individual and as a person. And we had lots of conversations about our family and our kids and things of that nature. And so one of the things that happened is that I would uh, fly over from Hong Kong to Zurich for our offsites. He was based in Zurich. And so we would have our offsite meeting and there was always some sort of outdoor activity that we would participate in. And he knew that although I'm a serious runner and I love sports, I'm definitely someone who is not, you know, more on, on the dressy side, right? So he's told me in advance this particular trip and he would never tell us what we were doing. He said, you really need to bring some casual clothes with you, Patsy. When I say casual, I mean like snow boots and the whole gear. I'm like, okay, sure. That, that, that sounds great. So I, of course, wear skinny jeans and Ugg boots and a little parka <laughs> where my colleagues are wearing zip up snowsuits. And the other thing, so we get to this place and we finally discover that we're going sledging right? So sledging is basically in Switzerland, sledding down a mountain. You ride up a ski lift as you would as if you were skiing, and then you get an old wooden sled and you go all the way down the mountain. Oh my God. (laughs) I'm scared of heights. So we get, and it was snowing. I'm not dressed appropriately. It was kind of darkish because the snow was coming down and we got to the lift and I'm at the bottom of the lift and all my colleagues start going up. And I said to my boss, I go, I'm sorry, you know, I can't do it. I can't get on this lift. I'm scared to death. I really, and there is no bar or anything. And so here's the best part of the story. So he goes, Patsy, we are going to do it. I know you can do it. You're very brave. You've moved all over the world. You take a lot of risks. You can do it. I'm like, no, I can't. He goes, all right. As if I were a child. And by the way, I'm in my thirties at this point, late thirties. He goes, Patsy, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ride up the lift and I'm going to make sure that everything's okay and that it's not scary. And I'm going to call it from the top. And your colleague is going to stay here with you as we wait. So he calls me from the top of the mountain. He goes, everything's fine. It's not scary. Go up with your colleague. It'll be fine. And I hesitated for one second, right? I just hesitated to say yes. He goes, 
okay, I'm coming down to get you. As I'm standing at the base of the snowy mountain, coming around the other side, of course, nobody else is on the other side of the lift, comes my boss with like icicles hanging out of his (laughs) (laughs) Come pick me up like a small child. So I ended up going up the lift with him and I ended up having a fantastic time. And you loved sledging. And I loved it, even in my skinny jeans. (laughs) (laughs) See, and that's, that's interesting that you trusted him enough to go down a mountain on a wooden sled (laughs) in your skinny jeans. That's very impressive, actually. Like that talks about his influence on you as a leader. But even the fact that he came down to pick you up. You know, there's something really unique about that. Like, it's like, that's, that's how leaders, right. Bring people along sometimes. Absolutely. Cause you, at that point you feel very supported and therefore trusted and therefore confident enough to take a risk. That is, it's a, it's an amazing metaphor for what it looks like at work. Right. Absolutely. Amazing. So now when we started talking about best bosses, Can you think of some that maybe didn't rank as best bosses? (laughs) And what were some of the lessons that you learned from those leaders? Sure. Absolutely. Unfortunately, we all have not the best bosses sometimes, but I've had mostly very good bosses. But uh, when I think about a couple that, that weren't so great, there are a couple things that really stand out to me. The first is the flip side of what I mentioned about my best boss, which is not taking the time to get to know you and not understanding what motivates you, not understanding what you like or dislike not understanding how to manage you appropriately. And this is something I've learned over the years as a boss myself, is that you really do need to understand that what motivates other people may not be what motivates you to start. And it certainly may not be what you expect motivates individuals. So, and that does not lead to a positive outcome. I think what that leads to is that you don't necessarily feel valued or trusted and therefore your productivity and your commitment can suffer. Right. You know, that makes so much sense to me because I find sometimes when I'm coaching different leaders, if they're very driven by money, they'll go, well, I don't have to tell Jane she did a good job because she's getting paid good enough to know that she's doing a good job. And I'm like, yeah, but Jane might not be as motivated by the bonus check as she is by the fact that you acknowledge her dedication in that moment or the, the great work she delivered, or the, she appreciates the verbal, you know, Hey, that, that strategy is brilliant. You know, Uh, sometimes it's just that little bit, but if, if the leader thinks, well, I don't need that, then they just assume everybody else on the team doesn't need that. Exactly. And then what happens is that you're you're not only going to have employees who don't feel valued or trusted, but engagement as well will drop. That's exactly right. You know, we as bosses and we as people reporting into bosses really need to, to think about what those factors are. I mean, somebody might want a promotion versus a raise. Somebody might want more responsibility and no raise. You know, somebody might want more exposure. You know, there there are so many different aspects of how people wish to be developed or to grow their careers that not to take the time to truly appreciate or understand that just doesn't work. Right. It's a it's a huge lost opportunity in a very short bed. 
One of the questions I love to ask people, you know, you, you mentioned this even in the conversation with your first boss. So you've been in the world of leadership development. You've been in the world of DEI, right? You understand all of these, what I would call, they're kind of hard to pin down, right? They're, you know, operations are, you know, it's easy for us to tell you what the ROI is on increasing output of an operation, for example, or, you know, making a better investment, but making an investment in your people to drive leaders to be best bosses is a tough sell often, right? Organizations are like, why should I spend X amount of money to build best bosses? And so I ask you, can you think of a way that you'd articulate the return on investment when you're working for a best boss versus when you're working for one of those not best bosses? Yeah, it's a also a great question. And um, having been, to your point, in almost every role I've ever had, whether it was trying to sell leadership development or inclusion or even ESG, which tends to be more data-driven and a little bit more quantifiable, right, for that reason. I think the issue is that, and how to explain it in my experience and how I continue to explain it, is that you have to think about the continuum of the impact of not having good leaders or good bosses in place. And so the way I think about it is looking at the entire employee life cycle, right? So how are you going to attract the right talent? How are you going to develop your talent? How are you going to engage them? How are you going to advance them? and ultimately retain them. So I think about it in that framework of those five areas of the life cycle to explain that if we don't address all aspects of the employee life cycle, you're ultimately going to lead to, as I mentioned briefly earlier, to a a loss of engagement, therefore a loss of productivity, and there is a positive correlation to innovation as well, And so therefore, at the end of the day, you're ultimately hitting the bottom line and profitability. Absolutely. And that it's so interesting because it makes sense to us. It's just hard to draw out those numbers, right? Like $100,000 spent here. We we can't see the direct line to $100,000 saved here, but disengaged employees are costing the business, right? Turnover of top talent costs the business. The amount of time it takes for a new leader to train a new hire costs the business. So it's so interesting how all those things add up, but there's no CFO that can nail down the exact line item of that cost, which makes leadership development often seen as a nice to have and not a need to have. Absolutely. And I think that's exactly right because it's very difficult for a CFO to really pinpoint that. Even though to your point, you re- and I've been through this exercise before in various organizations, you can cost out at least an estimate in terms of losing someone, having to hire someone, and then having that that period of onboarding before they actually become productive in their role. You can cost it out and you can cost out individual aspects of the employee life cycle. But to your point, it's, it's, it's very difficult to say that that's a direct correlation or that it's a, an absolute number. You know, it's more, more of an estimate. So it's a constant business case or proving the case for the importance of development and inclusion. Right. Absolutely. What are some of the things that you feel are kind of worth people understanding if they're really aiming to build more inclusive leadership? So there's a couple of things that I would say there. We talked a lot about empathy, which is, of course, the the overarching concept. 
But there's some research out there that I would encourage the listeners to take a look at, which is done by Deloitte a few years ago. And it's the six C's of inclusive leadership. I utilize it a lot in, in, in my work, and I'll tell you what they are. The first is courage, which we talked about as well. The second is curiosity, which really links back to learning agility. And then you have collaboration, the ability to work with different types of people across an organization, cultural competence, which is an aspect of inclusion that, in my experience, is less talked about than others, but really understanding from a global perspective, but also from a, a within our country perspective, the different cultures and how people behave accordingly and to be conscious of that. The other one is commitment. So being committed to being an inclusive leader, actually taking the time and the energy to do so. And then finally, and these are not in any particular order, it's actually quite a wheel the way they describe it, is cognizance. And that is cognizance of our own strengths and our own development areas. And from an inclusion perspective, specifically being cognizant of our own biases, both of those that we understand and know and are conscious of. And then, of course, taking the time to learn those that are unconscious biases. Amazing. Amazing. Those are, you know, again, all of us can be kind of assessing ourselves. How much am I actually doing in these camps, right? Yeah. Amazing. So just as I kind of bring this to close, thankfully, we have a lot of people out there that are listening to the show right now, and they're working on becoming best bosses, or they're, they are probably secretly between us. I'm betting that they're best bosses, and they're just looking for more tips and more tools, because that's the type of person who takes time to listen to this. If you could give them some real genius words of wisdom, some action items to leave this conversation and, you know, take into practice, how would you help direct them? Sure. Absolutely. And I would agree with you. I would imagine that anybody who takes the time to listen to different types of resources or read about development is is someone trying to better themselves, which already is a best boss. There's a word I haven't mentioned yet that I think is really important to call out. I think you know, it's important to really be focused on empathy and really just, again, it's, you know, it's that concept of understanding your people, but being taking it to the next level and being empathetic and to try to find ways to do that yourself by watching other people, by doing the research, and just being intentional and conscious of how you behave with your people and everybody across your your network or your ecosystem. I think the second piece I would highlight is the importance of lifelong learning. After many, many years of multiple research studies all around the globe on leadership, it is still indeed the case that the number one predictor of success is learning agility. And that really is that. And I know that, you know, many people on this call probably know that, but it's important, right? Because we all need to be learning. And I think it's important. I know I take every conversation as a learning experience, whether it's an expression, an example, a story or otherwise, to really take that on board and adjust your behavior for the next setting. And I think the third piece that I would bring up, and I feel very strongly about this one as well, is to have courage and to to be bold in what you do. And, and we all have varying levels of risk aversion or attraction to risk, but to really try to be as bold and courageous as you can, both as a boss and as someone, we all have a boss and report to a boss, no matter what level you're at, but to take that level of courage and to turn it into confidence and be bold where you can and take risks when you can within push while pushing yourself pushing yourself a little bit outside your comfort zone to the best of your ability. And wouldn't you say in a lot of ways that that courage 
kind of marries up with the lifelong learning in a way. It does. Yeah. You know, it's the courage to try that different thing or to take, you know, to do something, you know, the comfortable stuff is already learning that we've, we've gained, you know what I mean? It's already inherent, but the courage is really when you put that lifelong learning into practice, when you test something new and you're, you know, you're like, I don't know if this is going to work. Because I've never done it before. I think that's a neat one because it kind of goes, you know, it goes in alignment with that. It absolutely does. That's a great point because their very courage and lifelong learning imply change, right? So change is a line concept that you have this openness to change and openness to trying things and openness to being courageous. So I see to your point, all three of those coming together quite nicely. Right. And I love it because again, the empathy kind of also is a, you know, it's like having enough compassion for yourself to say, Hey, I'm trying it out. I'm, you know, it's not about me. I'm going to experiment and learn and be compassionate with other people who are actually in the process of trying to stretch and be bold, as you said. Right. And then I would add that, you know, as we think about the best boss, I think the other piece is as we talk about this concept, it makes me think a lot about as a boss, giving your people the opportunity to fail. Mm. Know that it's, I mean, certainly you don't want them to fail all the time because we need to run a business here. But at the end of the day, you know, to really have that, give people that freedom to know that if they do take a risk and they do fail, but they're transparent about it and they communicate it, that that's fine. Yeah, no. And actually, I mean, to, you know, to love those moments because they are, they are so educational. Yeah. Amazing. Any other last thoughts as we wrap this up? I, I would just say that I encourage everyone to continue to learn as a leader. I think, you know, even myself, 25 plus years in the work world, I learn something new every day. And I would just encourage everybody on this call to, to take that time to do so because, you know, an hour spent, let's just make this up an hour a day learning versus any other way of spending your time in the office or however your, your role plays out is worth its weight in gold. Absolutely. Perfect. Well, listen, thank you again. This was amazing. And I think a lot of people are going to be thinking about that, the empathy, the lifelong learning, and that courage to be bold. Well, thank you very much for having me. If you want to hear more, join me at christineleperriere.com and sign up for our newsletter, The Whip.